Well, good morning, church. You know, truth be told, that last song we sang, that is my new favorite song. I'm just going to put it out there. It is just powerful, covers so much ground. The lyrics are great. It's good stuff. Now, we're going to be looking at John 15 here in a moment. It's interestingly, um, eight years ago, uh, the first two sermons I gave here were from John 15. Uh, So we can keep coming back to the well here and drawing out stuff from John 15, because this is, this is fresh bread this morning. It's not one of those last two that I've given. This is new as we look at fruitfulness, fruitfulness. So uh, hang in there as we get to that in a moment. Mr. Nose and Mr. Hand were sitting in the church pew talking. All right, stay with me, okay? The morning service led by ear and mouth had just ended, and Hand was telling Nose that he and his family decided to look for a different church. Really, Nose responded to Hand's news. Why? Oh, I don't know, Hand said, looking down. I guess because the church doesn't have what Mrs. Hand and I are looking for. Well, what are you looking for in a church, Nose asked. Well, Hand had to think before answering. He and Mrs. Hand liked Pastor Mouth and his family. Don't ever call me that. (laughs) Minister of music, ear meant well. He said, I guess we're looking for a place where people are more like us, and finally stammered. We tried spending time with the legs, but we didn't connect with them. Next, we joined the small group for all the toes, but they kept talking about socks and shoes and odors, and that didn't interest us. Nose looked at him this time with genuine dismay. Aren't you glad they're concerned with odors? Sure, sure, but it's not for us. Then we attended the small group for all you facial features, We went for several weeks, but everyone in the facial small group just wanted to talk and listen, smell and taste. It felt like, well, like you never wanted to get to work and get your hands dirty. Anyway, Mrs. Hand and I were were thinking about checking out the new church over in Eastside. We hear they do a lot of clapping and hand raising, which is closer to what we need right now. Hmm, those replied, I see what you mean. Would hate to see you go, but I guess you have to do what's good for you. Sounds like your needs aren't being met here. Mrs. Hand nodded in agreement. She wanted to be polite, but truth be told, she wasn't sad to be leaving. The small groups were a little cliquish. The music wasn't lively enough. The programs were mostly geared for the ears. The teaching wasn't entirely to their liking, and in the end, in the end, it was hard for the two of them to put their fingers on it, but they finally decided the church wasn't for them. All right, it's a silly, ridiculous illustration that I adapted from Mark Dever, but it makes a point It makes a point. We go to Sunday services to get something. Makes sense. We choose churches that fit me, the the church where, you know, that meet me where I'm at. Sure, I get that. But I don't know about you, but it seems a bit odd that we use shopping with church as if the church is just like a product, like shopping around for a pair of shoes or a new grill or, or have this checklist of preferences that, that, you, that you're looking for just like you would for a new car or a new house. Isn't it weird that we apply that consumer paradigm to churches? And yet we use that language so casually, right? We go to church with this attitude, what am I going to get out of it today? Now, not to be misunderstood, okay? Bear with me on this. Not to be misunderstood, all right? If you get your hand on the email ready to send me something, hang on. Hang on. 
When I talk about church shopping, I don't mean the folks who just moved to a new area and are looking for a church to call home. That is a normal aspect of moving and finding a new church community. And let me add to that, that there are valid reasons, there are valid reasons to move on from one church to the next, okay? But by church shopping, I mean the ones who are constantly looking for the perfect church and shop around every few years. Church shoppers approach finding a church in the same way they approach finding a new pair of pants, looking around at all the options, choosing one that fits their preferences, buying it, and then discarding it when it no longer suits them. Church shopping illustrates some of the biggest issues consumerism perpetuates in our culture today. Sky Jeth and I put it this way, he said, consumerism is now the framework through which we interpret everything else, including God, the gospel, and the church. You see, marketers want you to consume. Jesus wants us to produce. Marketers want you to consume. Jesus wants you to produce. And so if you're not there in your Bibles, look with me at John chapter 15. John chapter 15 that Jeff just read for us. And we'll continue in our sermon series on follow me. Follow me. We're looking at different passages throughout the Gospels that let us in on what Jesus says about discipleship. And throughout our series, the hope has been to draw out marks or, or characteristics of true disciples, true followers of Jesus. And it should be clear by the end of our time this morning that followers are fruitful. True followers are fruitful. And I would argue that one of the greatest threats to fruitfulness is that we are conditioned to be consumers. All right, John 15, we're going to look at the expert gardener, and then we'll, we'll look at expect pruning and then embrace fruitfulness. First of all, expert gardener, expert gardener, uh, John chapter 15. And by the way, these words in John 15 are likely spoken towards the end of the, of the Last Supper and just a few days before Jesus' cruel death. That's the setting in which we find these words. Jesus says, chapter 15 of John, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Now, Jesus referring to himself as the true vine would have resonated with, with the Jewish people standing there. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were spoken of as the vine. And most Every time the imagery of the vine was used of Israel or the people of God, it was used negatively. I mean, you can do your own homework on that. But Israel was spoken of as a vine that did not bear fruit. It was often followed by some pronouncement of judgment. So when Jesus here refers to himself as the true vine, he's turning that imagery on its head. It's as if Jesus is saying that what the people of God did not do, I will do. See, Jesus fulfills what God intended for Israel, a vine that would bear fruit. Now, folks, that's the gospel right there. Jesus is what none of us uh, can, cannot be. Jesus has done what we could never do for ourselves. 
The rest of what Jesus says in these verses here will make no sense unless we first grab a hold of the fact Jesus is the true vine. You see, Jesus steps into our mess. He steps into our shortcomings. He steps into our failures. And no matter how hard we try, he says to us, I've got you for I am the true vine. Only way then to bear fruit that pleases the Lord is by recognizing that Jesus is the true vine. But then he goes on to say here, that God the Father is the gardener. And when we uh, went through um, our study in Isaiah, we stopped at uh, Isaiah chapter 5. And in chapter 5 of Isaiah, it spoke of God's care and attentiveness to the vineyard Israel, that God was the expert gardener. And you might recall that as we looked at Isaiah chapter 5, God calls out the people of God, the vineyard uh, Israel, for their failure to bear fruit. And God then asks this, verse 4 of Isaiah 5, What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? What is he asking? What is he saying? He's asking them, is it, is it my fault that you failed to bear good fruit. I mean, can God be blamed? Is our situation, and whatever we're in right now, to be blamed for our lack of fruitfulness? A golfer was invited to play a round of golf on a course known for its difficulty. And as he stood to hit his first shot in the first hole, he, he gave it a big swing, and, and, and it was a big miss. He gave it a, a second swing, and, and he missed again. A third time he swung, and it was a third time, nothing but air. <laughs> in total frustration, he turned to his friend standing nearby, and he said, man, this is a tough course. <laughs> I don't think it's the course. But often we do. It's my situation in life. If it were different, I would be more fruitful. If I had a different course that my life took, I would be fruitful. Lord, if I only grew up in a different home, or if I, if I had a different education, or I didn't have this learning disability, or those plans that, that took that awful turn, if th those things didn't happen in my life, there would then be fruit in my life. Really? Can we really say, God, if you had done a little more for me, you would then see fruit in my life? You see, the sovereign Lord is more than capable of redeeming even the worst of situations for his good. He cannot be blamed for bad fruit or no fruit in our lives for whatever course that we're on right now. Because God is the expert gardener. His management of the details of our lives is more than adequate. We are in no better hands than the expert gardener. And God is the gardener knows how to maximize our potential for fruit bearing. He's an expert in growing fruit. Which leads to the second point this morning. Expect pruning. Expect pruning. Look at verse 2. Jesus says of the expert gardener. He says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. Now, some of you might not have got part of that first half of that sentence there. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. Well, let me just speak to that briefly. I really don't want to spend a lot of time on this. 
What is he referring to? Well, even a little further down to make it, you know, even more difficult to understand. In verse 6, Jesus speaks of these branches that are cut off as only good for kindling, only for throwing in the fire. What he's saying here is to mere professing Christians but no fruit to show for it, they are cut off. They do not derive any life from the vine. Jesus, we have seen throughout our study, haven't we, especially in portions in John, that there were those who claimed to believe, the wannabe followers, and then there were those who really, truly followed Jesus. There were those two groups. And we really, we really shouldn't push this imagery further than intended. This is not teaching. This is not teaching, as some have suggested, that a person can lose their salvation. Remember, Jesus was cut off so that we, true followers of Jesus, can only be cut back. We're told in Isaiah 53, no time to spend on this, but Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, was cut off from the land of the living. Isaiah 53, verse 8. Jesus was cut off, it says. He gave his life for our sins so that we as his followers can only be cut back. We can never be cut off from Jesus if we truly know Jesus. A true follower of Jesus is never in danger of being cut off, but they will be cut back, pruned. Why? So they can be more fruitful. You see, if you're joined with Jesus, then there ought to be fruit to show for it. Are you bearing fruit? You say, well, pastor, that depends. What do you mean by fruit? Well, how we define that fruit matters. Because if you think of fruit in this external, moral, religious ways, then we are no better off than the Pharisees or the moralists. Fruit is not to be confused with some mechanical outward compliance. We get confused. This Really, honestly, this is where our Christianity can go sideways. Because what may appear to be fruit is nothing more than just jumping through the right hoops. For example, when one spouse says to the other spouse, if you don't change, then I'm going to leave you, The spouse may change for a bit until things get back to a better place. And they're in the same place. They never really changed. Why? Because it's nothing more than outward compliance to an external force. If someone says, I cannot marry you unless I first see this, this, and this, then that external force may pressure the person to do the right things until they get what they want. Have we seen that one? I have. It's like when you, when you fear that bad report or something bad's going to happen to you, and so you shape up, you know, you, you clean things up in your life, you, you toe the line for a bit until the bad thing passes, what you feared goes away, and you're right back to where you were before. No real change. Why not? It didn't come from the vital connection that transforms you from the inside. It was some external force. It's like cutting down that that Christmas tree and sticking a bunch of beautiful ornaments and tinsel and lights on it. So it looks beautiful for a bit, 
right? But then eventually you have to throw that tree away. Why? It has no life in it. The fruit that Jesus speaks of here, this is why it's hard to get our minds around it a little bit. It's the organic change from within that is life-giving. It comes from the life we have in Jesus. Don't just try and stick all these right things, Christianese stuff, on us and go, look, there's my fruit. Go to church. I do this. I do that. Look. No, when we're vitally connected to Jesus as the true vine, what this whole passage is all about, fruit is inevitable. It says his life comes into our lives that there's this new internal dynamic. And as we remain in that union with Christ, that outflow of that union is fruitfulness. And you see, there ought to be a likeness of the fruit to the source. There ought to be a likeness of the fruit to the source. There were these three brothers who would use an old fruit tree located outside their bedroom window as a means of sneaking out of their room when everyone was asleep. And they go down this fruit tree, and off they went to be mischievous. One day, they overheard their dad mention that it was time to take that fruit tree down for it hadn't borne fruit for years. The brothers knew they had to do something quickly. It's not a really bright plan, but this is what they did. They go, went and bought a basket of apples from a nearby apple orchard, and in the middle of the night proceeded to tie these apples onto the branches. <laughs> the next morning, they waited in anticipation for their dad to notice this overnight miracle phenomenon. And the dad shouted to the boys, I can't believe my eyes. For years, this tree produced nothing, and now it's covered with apples. I mean, that's amazing. He said, but the real miracle is that it's a pear tree. <laughs> Didn't work so well. See, the fruit that should be visible for all to see ought to be a resemblance of the source, Jesus Christ. And then what then should be visible is fruit, fruit of his character, being seen in our lives. Is that being seen in your life? Is that being seen in my life? Fruit of, 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 of our lives reflecting who Jesus is. Fruit of growth in our lives. And not just some fruit, but more fruit, and then much fruit, as this passage goes on to say. And this is why we can expect pruning. God is so committed to producing fruit in your life you can expect pruning. Now, I would have preferred it to say, every branch that does bear fruit will be blessed. <laughs> every, every branch that does bear fruit will be comfortable. Every branch that does bear fruit will be left alone. That's what I would have preferred it to say, I think. There's a true story of a, of a pastor who received an email asking to be removed from the church membership, and the stated reason for leaving was, I don't like the pastor's sermons. Ouch, okay? So pastor wanted to follow up on this, and he went to visit the person and, and said to him, you know, I understand you're leaving the church because you don't like my sermons. Well, he kind of caught him a little off guard, but he answered, well, this is what it is, pastor. Whenever I listen to your messages, I feel like you're trying to interfere with my life. 
Isn't that part of my job description? <laughs> Interfere with your life. Comfort the disturbed, disturb the comfortable. Yeah. Here's the thing. Once you choose to follow Jesus, you are then giving him permission to interfere with your life. So if you're bearing some fruit, you can expect pruning. Why? Why would the Lord prune what is already fruitful so we bear more fruit? And why would he prune us when we're already more fruitful so that we bear much fruit? Listen, you will not grow without some pruning in your life. I will not grow without some pruning in my life. And I don't like it. I'm feeling it now in some ways. I will not grow without some pruning in my life. Now, I really don't know much about vineyards. So I'm forced to kind of rely on others' take on it again. This is where you can kind of, you know, seek it out yourself and do some reading on it. But my understanding of the pruning process by the gardener is that the plant, uh, if, the, if the plant is to grow and produce the best grapes, the knife must take off anything that is getting in the way of productivity. So when the gardener's done, and they do this annually at least, all over the ground... To the naked eye are these beautiful things, even some clusters of grapes perhaps, that they look like they should have never been taken off. But everything that is to be taken off is taken off so that the plant is going to reach its fullness. In the same way, what may look like to us a disaster and a total waste is God working in us to reach our potential, our fullness. And here's the thing. If you're experiencing pruning right now, consider, consider how close to you Jesus is when he's pruning you. Right? A gardener doesn't just take the sickle and just start going all over the place and chopping everything down. No, comes up close. The knife that God uses to prune you, up close, personal. Let's cut this off. Let's prune this. Let's cut this back. And this pruning, it may go against every consumer impulse in us, but it's the most loving work God can do for us. He knows where we need to be clipped to be pruned. And so you go, you, you, mean, you mean that God brought this situation in my life to, to make me more fruitful? You mean, there, there's really no reason I shouldn't have gotten that job and I didn't get that job? You mean, you mean I, I didn't get that promotion because it might have something to do with God pruning me? Or, you know, I'm having this relational conflict right now? Is that what God's doing? Why are doubts invading my headspace? Pruning that you may reflect in a greater way the character of Jesus Christ. And the pruning... It may be clipping away that personal ambition because it's stunting your growth. The pruning may be God's way of just kind of stirring in you a greater affections for him because lately your affections have been on some things in this life. There may be 
something in your life right now that you're okay living with? And the knife comes to show you that, that's holding you back from what God wants for your life, from reaching your fullest potential. Pruning hurts. <laughs> I don't think that's going on there, but my granddaughter doesn't need pruning. She's perfect. Heresy. Pruning hurts. Pruning hurts. Now listen, it doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. I mean, it's good to kind of do a self-check there, but it just may simply be the pruning work of God in your life so you can better reflect the character of Jesus. God's saying, I'm going to grow you in this area so you can be more fruitful. Experiencing that? some change in your life, reflecting the character of Jesus, expect pruning. But remember, we have the expert gardener, but thirdly, I want us to just remember this, really where it all boils down, embrace fruitfulness. Embrace fruitfulness. Look at verse 8, John 15. Jesus says, this to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Do you see it? It's assumed that to be a follower of Jesus, to bear fruit, this isn't a suggestion. You can't say, yeah, 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 I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but there's really no fruit to show for it. A fruitless disciple is really an oxymoron. If we're joined to Jesus, then there ought to be fruit to show for it. Fruit bearing is the both expectation, the result of remaining in Christ. Look what it says in verse 16. You did not choose me, Jesus, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, without getting lost in the language here of Jesus choosing us, that's a, that's a sermon for another time. I want you just to, to embrace what we're called to, the second part of that verse. We're called to fruitfulness. That is what God is after in living hope. That is God's aim for you. That is God's aim for me, a life of fruitfulness, and that is a mark of a disciple. You see, as this verse says, we don't exist for ourselves. We exist to glorify God. We don't exist just to be a consumer, but to bear fruit. Listen, this consumer stuff, we all struggle with it. I struggle with it. We all struggle with it. In The Shattered Lantern, Ronald Rollheiser writes this. He says, our lives become consumed with the idea that unless we somehow experience everything, travel everywhere, see everything, and are part of a large number of people's experience, then our lives are small and meaningless. That is a lie. God has given us something bigger and more meaningful to live for, to know him and to make him known. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, we are to be productive. The idea of being productive is not the invention of capitalism. It's the mandate of Christ. He saves us in our futility and calls us to be fruitful. Embrace fruitfulness. What does that look like? Quickly, let me give it to you. First of all, stay connected. Stay connected. The non-negotiable for the fruitful Christian is remaining in Christ. 
It's by remaining in him that his life flows through us and is seen in us and through us. And when his life flows out of our lives, that is fruit. When others see his love flowing out of us, that is fruit. And often in this passage, he speaks of love, uh, loving uh, that would join with him. We, we love others. And we're going to pick that thought up next week. But for now, suffice it to say, if we don't love the other branches, we're not bearing fruit. We can't be remaining in Christ and wounding others at the same time. Consider, consider the inordinate amount of time spent on repairing broken branches that have been poked and hurt by other branches that were meant to bear fruit, not bruise it. Does his love flow through you? Are you staying connected to him? It's the only way we can be fruitful. For Jesus says at the end of verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Whenever I read those words, I have to stop and say, to what degree do I really believe that? See, in order to be fruitful, we need to have a growing sense of how much we need him for everything. So I ask you, in what area of your life right now do you need to humbly concede that you are dependent on him? Stay connected. The more we remain, the more we bear fruit. The more we bear fruit, the more he prunes. The more he prunes, the more fruit produced in us. All right, secondly, fruitful living is joyful living. Fruitful living is joyful living. Notice what he says in verse 11. Jesus says, I've told you this so that, my, so that you may be filled with guilt. That's not what it says. I told you this so that my joy may be in you. Your joy may be complete. And I wonder if there's little joy in our lives is because there's very little fruit. J. Campbell White expressed it this way. He said, fame, pleasure, riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. We get to work with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. I mean, how exciting is that? I mean, that's worth getting up each morning. This pathway to joy, fruitful living. Thirdly, get to give. Get to give. Consumption is a part of life. But it's a preoccupation with the consumption that is perhaps the greatest threat to fruitfulness. Jesus shows us a better way, a role we ought to play as producers at fruit bearers. Have you noticed? Fruit trees don't produce fruit for themselves, right? Fruit is produced, why? To bless others. I mean, it's good, church, to take in and consume God's word. It's right to come here on Sunday mornings to get something. It's good to go to Bible studies to get something out of it. That is good. That is right. But we consume in order to bless others with spiritual things. We are here not just to get, but to get so we may give. Because fruit is nourishing. It does the body good. We get to give. And I venture to say, if your walk with Christ has become kind of blasé lately, you become kind of bored in your, in your Christian experience, it just may be because too much of it has been only what you can get out of it. The exciting part is when you see what Christ produces through your life can actually nourish others. It's a true story of a man who was driving his car from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to Tampa, Florida. 
And the thing that he noticed as he was making this drive more than anything else were the orange trees everywhere. As far as the eye could see, thousands upon thousands of oranges everywhere. He stops into a restaurant. He orders bacon and eggs and a glass of orange juice with his meal. And the waitress says, I'm sorry, we don't have any orange juice. <laughs> she then explains, our machine is broken. He's thinking to himself, here we are, surrounded by millions of oranges. Thousands of gallons of orange juice are right out here in these fields. And I know that this restaurant has oranges in the kitchen because there are slices of oranges on my plate. And yet you're telling me you have no orange juice because the machine is broken. What's the problem? They became so dependent on the machine. And Pastor Skip likens this to our own wrong dependence on the machine. That our favorite preacher is just one click away. We're surrounded by Bible teachers, but we're so accustomed to the machine kicking out spiritual nourishment for us to consume. And we, and we leave here and we go, yeah, 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 I like that sermon today from one to ten. I don't know, I'll give it a seven. The music today is a nice tune, easy beat. I like that. We can get fed, we can get nourished, we consume. But then we should give. Our attitude ought to be, yeah, that's good to get. But what, with what I'm now getting, I'm going to make my own orange juice. I'm going to turn my focus on others around me and with the truth that I have learned, I'm going to give it out. I'm going to depend on the machine. Because if we don't do that, we're just going to turn into sermon connoisseurs. But when we don't depend on the machine, but with the life that is in us for those who know Jesus, the production of Christ that is through us, we will then nourish other people. Life becomes exciting. We get to give. Followers, true followers, are fruitful. Let's pray. Lord, we can't miss in all of this. Didn't spend a lot of time on it. The whole aspect of remaining, abiding, staying connected. Not for a moment can we expect that we're going to bear fruit by just kind of doing it on our own. It's only as we cry out to you how much we need you and for your life to flow through our lives will we then bless others, nourish others, not just be consumers, but producers as you work in and through us. May that be true as we cry out to you in this prayer, Lord, I need you. It's all to your glory in Jesus' name, amen.